0: Thank you for joining IRW Coffee Break. This is a podcast series hosted by KPMG IRW specialists within the Washington National Tax Practice to discuss current topics in the field of information reporting and withholding. Every episode, will discuss a discrete area of interest in a brief segment. So we invite you to grab a cup of coffee or just get comfortable while we explore all things IRW. Welcome to IRW Coffee Break. I'm your host, Danielle Nishida, and today we're welcoming back Nelson Sweet, a managing director in our IRW practice to discuss the recently proposed regulations governing the reporting of digital assets. When we last chatted with Nelson back in 2021, it was to discuss the legislation that had just passed regarding the updates to section 6045 requiring brokers to report sales of digital assets. We are now just seeing the accompanying proposed regulations that have been anticipated ever since. As a matter of background, consistent with the statute, the proposed regulations define a digital asset as any digital representation of value that is recorded on a cryptographically secured ledger or any similar technology without regard to whether each individual transaction involving that digital asset is actually recorded on that ledger. This definition would include your traditional cryptocurrencies, as well as any other crypto assets stored on a distributed ledger, such as NFTs or non-fungible tokens. One thing the regulations are clear about is that they make no inference as to whether digital assets are properly classified as a security, commodity, option, etc. for any other purpose of the code. That means they're also silent as to whether brokers should have been reporting digital assets prior to the implementation of these roles. So to get us started, Nelson, why don't we talk about who's actually impacted by these regulations?
1: The proposed regulations do not really change that much the actual definition of broker. And a broker under 6045 is any person, U.S. or foreign, that in the ordinary course of a trade or business during the calendar year stands ready to affect sales to be made by others. But beyond the general definition of broker and digital assets, figuring out who's in and out under these regulations require knowing a number of other definitions within the proposed regulations. Even if you are a broker under the general definition, reporting is generally required only if, in the ordinary trade of business, the broker affects sales of all customer, and effects and sales, in particular, have their own specific meaning. So, effect means acting as an agent or a principal that is a dealer with respect to a sale. But it also brings in now uh, new concepts of a digital asset middleman, which is intended to catch some of the SteFi platforms within the reporting framework. With respect to what is a sale, a sale of digital assets means a sale for cash, but it can also mean a sale for store value cards and other property including other digital assets. So if you have a digital asset exchange for another digital asset, that could be a sale, but also could mean a sale of digital assets for services, for example, broker commissions. So all of that is within the definition of of sale. But in addition to these, what's a little bit surprising is that the regulations also cover payments to digital asset payment processors. And those payments can also be considered as sales under these broker reporting regulations.
0: So given those definitions, any surprises on who's in scope and out of scope from what we were expecting when the statute was released?
1: I think who we expect to be in scope would be custodial brokers that deal with digital asset sales. And we had also expected that these regulations would reach some of the DeFi space, decentralized platforms. But I think we were surprised a little bit that it was pretty comprehensive in its approach to uh, digital asset payment processors as well. So you have certain custodial brokers in scope, certain DeFi platforms, principally those where certain persons maintain substantial control over the smart contracts. It may include certain NFT marketplaces if that control exists. Also, digital asset payment processors, those who help process digital asset payments on behalf of certain merchants or sellers. Okay. And so who is safely out of scope under these regulations? I think safely out of scope are validators. So miners in a proof of work blockchain, validators on a proof of stake blockchain, they are out of scope under these regulations. The regulations also provide that providers of hardware wallets and software wallets, so long as those are the only things it does, would be out of scope. But if that software wallet has a direct connection to a trading platform, then they could be back in scope. Also out of scope will be a merchant that accepts digital assets directly in exchange for its own goods and services, as well as maybe an NFT minter who mints his or her own NFT and sells it in the marketplace. Those are the excluded categories.
0: Okay. And in terms of who's in scope, where are we expecting the most industry pushback now that we're seeing these
1: rules? I think the big area is with respect to DeFi platforms, the proposed regulations provide that certain persons who may retain sufficient control over the smart contracts would be treated as a broker if that person is in a position to identify the seller and the transaction is one that gives rise to gross proceeds. So an example that's given in the proposed regulations is a platform controlled by persons who can amend the contract, the smart contracts, to change the fees that are charged. But there are a lot of practical challenges with DeFi platforms complying with these regulations from figuring out who this reporting person is, when it's possible that that you have a group of individuals who may change from day to day, right? To obtaining user information on platforms that traditionally did not maintain customer accounts in the manner of traditional brokers.
0: Okay, and one thing I think might be also a little surprising was the impact of 6050W. Not that it's being impacted, but the manner in which it's being impacted. I think prior to these proposed regs, the question had existed whether payments made in digital assets through either third-party network organizations or payment card networks should constitute a sale of goods that should be reported under 6050W. And when we saw 6050W being included in the proposed reg package, I think many might have expected the regulations to clarify that digital assets should have been reported under 6050W. However, what we're seeing in these proposed regs is that the regulations are not taking a position at all on whether the sale of digital assets through payment settlement entities should have been reported under 6050W previously. Instead, they're simply adding payment processors, which includes TPSOs and payment card issuers, to the definition of brokers under 6045 And they're providing a coordination role indicating that reporting under 6045 would control when both 6045 and 6050W could potentially apply. So, for example, when a customer of a third-party settlement organization pays for goods or services and digital assets in lieu of cash, the regulations clarify that there's really two sales that are taking place. One, the sale of goods or services by the merchant, and two, a sale of the digital assets by the customer i.e. the buyer of the goods and services. Accordingly, the TPSO will continue to report on Form 1099-K with respect to the sale of goods or services by the merchant in the same manner it normally does. But in addition to that, the TPSO must now also report under 6045 with respect to the customer's sale of the digital asset on the appropriate form used for sales of digital assets. So this approach makes sense from a technical perspective, but it does mean that TPSOs, will need to be prepared to process multiple reporting with two different forms for a single transaction, which may be complicated.
1: Yeah, an additional complication when you think about these rules is in the context of NFT marketplaces. In NFT marketplaces, you could potentially also have the two sales, Danielle, that you mentioned. One being when someone pays digital asset for an NFT, that's a sale. But when the seller sells NFT, the sale of the NFT is is a second sale. And these particular proposed regulations bring that second sale outside of 6050W. So even if you have a TPSO in between in in these sales, the reporting on the sale of the NFT to the seller is under 6045 under the broker reporting regulations. And what's even more complicated sometimes in these NFT marketplaces is that you could have a buyer, a so-called buyer, who wants to swap one NFT for another participant's NFT. And on an NFT to NFT swap, you come upon real valuation issues as to what exactly is gross proceeds. And that amount for some of these NFTs might not be determinable. That's a good point.
0: You know, and another error we had not necessarily been anticipating guidance pertains to the reporting of real estate transactions that are also paid for in digital assets, Nelson, I'm reading these rules as applying basically in the same manner I explained with respect to 6050W, where the normal real estate reporting would continue the way it does today, but there would also be an additional sale that has to be reported under 6045 with respect to the use of the digital
1: asset. Is that correct? Yes. Currently, under the real estate transaction reporting rules, usually the closing attorney would file a 1099-S to report the gross proceeds from the sale to the seller. Now if the particular real estate transaction was paid in digital assets then the buyer would be treated as selling those digital assets and the reporting person would now have to file uh, a separate report on the sale of digital assets by the buyer
0: So while well, I don't think we were anticipating these rules with respect to real estate transaction and maybe weren't an- anticipating exactly how the rules would coordinate with 6050w None of this seems surprising given the government's desire to have reporting anytime um, digital assets are used as payment. So let's shift now to talk about what exactly has to be reported. We are still waiting on draft forms with respect to the reporting of digital assets, but the proposed regulations do give us some insight regarding what exactly must be reported on those forms.
1: Nelson, can you maybe walk us through that? The reporting for gross proceeds from sales of digital assets is proposed to be effective, for sales occurring on or after January 1, 2025. And the information to be reported differs a bit from reporting for traditional securities. So you have the usual, I think, customer information, customer name, customer address, a customer tax identification number, but then the transaction information is slightly different. The broker is supposed to report the digital asset name, digital asset quantity, which is sort of um, reasonable. Also the sale date and time. So they go to a timestamp instead of just the date of sale and the amount of gross proceeds and what they call the transaction ID, usually the transaction hash for the particular transaction, the wallet address, if applicable, especially if it's an unhosted wallet. And also what the sale was for. Was it for cash, cards, services, or other property? So that should be specified in the transaction information. In addition, since the IRS currently doesn't have in place rules for reporting of transfers of digital assets from one wallet to another, they are also asking for certain transfer information on the digital assets that are sold, if that digital asset was transferred into that account or wallet. So they're asking for the date and time when a transfer took place, the transfer transaction ID, again, the transaction hash the wallet address from which that digital asset was transferred from, and also the transfer quantity. So you could think of it in a sale where you have to multiple lots of digital assets that there might be multiple transfers information coming in. And I think the reason for this is that the IRS wants to have a means to corroborate a taxpayer's cost basis, because currently for these types of assets, there is no cost basis unless it fits into a very narrow category.
0: And actually, can you elaborate on when exactly we're required to do cost basis reporting for digital assets?
1: So the proposed regulations plan on having cost basis reporting occurring for sales of what they call covered securities on or after January 1, 26. But the way the covered securities are defined currently, it will principally impact digital assets that are held in custodial broker wallets and for sort of the duration of their holding period. So if I acquired a digital assets today and hold it in, um, in a custodial broker's account and sell it on or after Jan 1, the proposed regulations would say that is subject to cost basis reporting. And the interesting thing is that the proposed regulation says they would look back to digital assets acquired on or after January 1, 2023. So, Even though we're now in 2025, brokers presumably would have to trace back in the event they do have a customer with a long-term holding in their account. But with cost basis reporting, we require reporting, of course, of the cost basis with respect to the asset, whether the gain loss is long-term or short-term, and also the acquisition date in addition to the information that we have for gross proceeds.
0: Okay, so even if you are a broker affecting sales of digital assets, There are a couple of exceptions that apply. First, the rules pertaining to exempt recipients currently under Section 6045 remain consistent when applied to sales of digital assets. It is worth noting that the multiple broker rule, which seeks to avoid duplicative reporting when a transaction is conducted through a chain of brokers, has not been extended to digital asset brokers. The governments express concern over whether there's the same level of reliability with digital asset brokers, so they're hesitant to relieve the first broker from compliance obligations when they aren't confident that the second broker will actually comply. They've indicated that they're interested in coming up with solutions to reduce duplicative reporting here and have solicited comments on this. Realistically, one option might be that they require the first broker to obtain a certification from the second broker, that the second broker will, in fact, actually comply with its reporting obligations, or alternately, they could allow brokers to work out the reporting requirements contractually. Either of these options are more cumbersome than the current rule we have, but they may provide additional insurances that somebody will actually report. But the key thing is, as of now, this multiple broker rule is not applicable to transactions for digital assets. So we have to wait for the final regulations to see how that will wind up. And then sales affected for customers that are treated as exempt foreign persons are also out of scope of these roles as these proposed regulations are targeting reporting of U.S. persons only. I will note that the preamble to the proposed regulations does caution that this rule could change in the future if the U.S. were to adopt CARF, as that would then require the exchange of data pertaining to non-U.S. persons as well. However, presently, the foreign persons are accepted from these regulations. This exception is consistent with the current Section 6045 guidance. However, the manner in determining whether a customer is an exempt foreign person under the proposed regs will differ from the existing rules currently in effect for the sale of securities. And the reason for this is unlike the offshore exceptions pertaining to the sale of securities, which provide for reduced documentation standard based on the physical location from which the sale is affected. Since digital asset transactions are expected to be done online and often without any in-person contact between the broker and the customer, the proposed documentation rules for sales of digital assets focus less on the physical location where the broker is located, and instead are focusing more on the type of broker affecting the sale, and in some cases, the information available regarding the customer. And because of those additional factors, these documentation rules are actually much more complex than we've seen previously. So to start us off, as always, collecting forms W-8 remains a gold standard for establishing that the customer is an exempt foreign person, and that has not changed. For U.S. digital asset brokers, collecting Form W-8 is a sole documentation option available to them. That's going to apply even if the broker is a foreign branch of a U.S. broker that's operating outside of the U.S. Since a foreign branch is still a U.S. digital asset broker, the foreign branch will be required to collect a Form W-8 and cannot rely on documentary evidence. One thing I want to note is that the proposed regulations do reference an additional requirement to obtain a certification that an individual customer is an exempt foreign person that does not meet the substantial presence test. It states that but this certification that they're talking about is already contained on the WA-BEN and in the WA-BEN instructions. So this is not actually a new requirement, it's just reflecting what you're already going to be certifying to when you complete a WA ban. So despite the apparent complications, the rule is just get a W-8. Okay, and that's the rule that applies to U.S. brokers. For digital asset brokers that are CFCs, the documentation rules are going to depend on whether the CFC is conducting activities as a money services business. What they mean when they're saying conducting a money service business is that the CFC is actually registered with Treasury as a money service business. And it generally applies to persons doing business in the capacity of like a dealer, a foreign exchange, or money transmitters, check cashiers, and similar types of businesses. These entities are already subject to greater AML requirements. And so consistent with that, they're going to be subject to higher documentation standards under the proposed regs. For CFCs that are engaged in a money service business, they are basically gonna follow the same rules as US brokers, which means they're gonna be required to collect WAs. There is an exception that applies in certain instances if the CFC is operated out of a digital asset kiosk outside of the US where they actually have a physical location. In certain cases, that CFC could then apply the documentation rules as if it were not a money service business. But aside from that, Basically, the CFCs that are engaged in money services businesses are going to be treated the same as the U.S. brokers. And then for CFCs that are not conducting activities as a money service business, they're going to have the option to either use a Form W-8 or documentary evidence to establish a customer's foreign status. And then the entities with the most wiggle room um, are the non-U.S. brokers. Um, Non-U.S. digital asset brokers will not be treated as brokers with respect to digital assets under 6045 unless one of two things. Either the broker has documentation or information indicating that the customer has any connection to the U.S. or may be a U.S. person, or the broker has any indicia on file associated with the payee. And one thing to caution here, we have a whole bunch of new indicia. And so indicia for these purposes includes the traditional indicia we're used to seeing, permanent or mailing address in the U.S., the U.S. telephone number when there's no coordinating foreign number, classification as a U.S. person in the records, the U.S. place of birth. But it also adds a couple more pieces of indicia. An IP address that indicates a location within the United States is now U.S. indicia, And any cash or transfer of digital assets from a bank, financial institution, or broker in the United States is also gonna be treated as US indicia. So if there's any US indicia here, then the non-broker will be required to report unless they get curative documentation. And so the bottom line is, the forms WA will always be acceptable, but beyond that, any other flexibility available in terms of documenting based on Indisher, documenting with documentary evidence will be based on the type of broker involved. And then there's also a coordinated offshore exception with respect to backup withholding on sales of digital assets that apply to either a non-US digital asset broker or a CFC digital asset broker, such that the non-US digital asset broker or the CFC is not required to perform backup withholding on the sale of digital assets, provided that number one, the broker is not conducting any activities as a money services business with respect to the sale. And two, the payer or broker has no actual knowledge that the payee is a US person. Therefore, even if reporting is required, there is no backup withholding required in that circumstance. And then finally, as you mentioned previously, the implementation for these rules is 2026 with respect to reporting for transactions occurring in 2025. As brokers would really need to have their processes in place prior to engaging in any reportable transactions, we're really only 15 months away from the time brokers need to have processes and systems updated. I'm expecting a lot of pushback from the industry here, especially since these are only proposed regs right now. Even though they're very comprehensive proposed regs, it's very hard to design systems when the rules are still subject to change. So given the short time frame between the release of these proposed regulations and the necessary implementation date what steps do you recommend for persons transacting in sales of digital assets
1: There are actually surprisingly a number of steps that can be taken now even though these regulations are proposed one it would be important to begin an assessment of the impact of the proposed regulations against the current business model of a particular business, not only for the challenges that might come into play in terms of complying with these proposed regulations, but also taking a look at the business structure, the relationships, contracts, to see if there is any flexibility on the part of the business to make amendments to that structure or or business model in order to either be in or out of these proposed regulations. Second, It makes sense to talk to peers and see what they are thinking, to understand what is uh, industry practice, which may be in in a state of flux for for a while, but also potentially to coordinate responses with respect to the proposed regulations. Just a note that the proposed regulations contain some 50 questions from the Treasury and the IRS asking industry participants and practitioners what they think on multiple series of topics. So this is a good time to, to look at those, especially the topics that would impact your business model. It is also perhaps a time to educate key stakeholders within the organization and let them know what is happening because they may be necessary to supporting the implementation of any compliance systems going or processes going forward. And finally, for those who are likely to be in, for example, those who are Custodial brokers, this might also be the time to actually take a look at current systems and see one, are they capturing the information required for reporting, including for certain digital assets that might be covered assets as of 1126? Because there's a traceback to assets purchased as of 1123. It would be a time to discuss with stakeholders who will be responsible for uh, business requirements and implementation. And also uh, for considering whether it's something that is feasible to be built within the organization or whether it is um, a process or, um, or a system uh, that requires going to an outside third party vendor. These are all good steps to take at this point.
0: Thanks for that, Nelson. And you know, this is a very high level discussion, but we do have further webcasts and materials that are being planned right now. Nelson, I understand that there's a webcast upcoming next week. Is that right?
1: Yeah, we're presenting a webcast on September 18th at 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern time. And we will go into more detail on some of the impacts of these proposed regulations on various industry participants. We are also in the process of drafting further write-ups regarding the impacts of the proposed regulations by industry segment.
0: Great. We look forward to seeing those. And thank you so much for participating. And thanks to all of our listeners. We'll see you next time.